Hello, I'm Melody Asani. I'm Julie Burns Walker. Together, we welcome you to the Butterfly Forecast. Oh, it's so good to see your face, Afshin. It just hit me how long it's been since I've seen you. I know. It's been it's been way too long. That's crazy. I've enjoyed your guys' podcast. They're fantastic. They're like therapy for me. So thank you. Oh, thank you. Thanks, Afshin. Well, it's such a pleasure to be speaking with you because Julie and I were speaking and you're really somebody that's inspired us. You know, we met you in different ways, but I remember the first time I met you, which was at Prince's house Mm -hmm. when he was throwing all those parties in LA. I was so excited to meet you because I would rarely meet other Iranians in those types of environments. And then to observe your art and just your whole journey has been such a gift it's like your presence is actually a present. <laughs> wow, that is that is so sweet of you. I, I was thinking too just about when we met, and similarly, I was as excited to meet you because, like you said, there aren't there weren't a lot of Iranians or ones that I knew at least at that point in the creative world. You know, Prince has brought me close to so many people. I think one of the gifts, besides just you know being next to him and through osmosis, learning from him, was all the people that I've been connected to. The, artists, musicians, fans, and that's really been a gift for me. Yeah, I think he was kind of gifted with bringing people together because even in his death, he brought people together. Yeah, that's true. Thinking about Iranians and and creativity, I I did a talk in London to a group of young Iranian professionals who had come to a gallery show that I had. And Iranians have just this really rich cultural and, and art history and a love for the arts. I mean, families get together and read poetry together. But if you ever talk to an Iranian parent or a kid says, hey, I want to go into the arts, they're like, no, absolutely not. (laughs) They discourage it. And yet we have this love for the arts. And so to find people, to find other Iranians that found their way into the arts and the creative spaces has always been special. And I didn't even start there. I was following kind of the the cliche path and I was a a physics and, and aerospace engineering student. But I realized for a career and for a, a life path, it wasn't it. So I had always been interested in, in films and, and photography and image making. And I thought, okay, if this isn't it, what am I going to do? And really, I think it, it was a decision to figure out how to get into film. And I was living in Minnesota at the time. So it's not like there were filmmakers and, and movies happening. So one, figuring out how to just get into the industry or to learn But also, you know, a challenge for me was like, okay, what am I going to tell my parents and my family? Because I'm going to step out of this world. My cousins were electrical engineers, really successful. One of them went to space. And here I am saying, okay, I want to get out of engineering and pursue art, filmmaking. I don't know what. (laughs) So I said, okay, I am going to get a degree. This is what I'm going to pursue. And I was lucky because my mother was very open. I mean, she had a creative, has a creative soul and passion and, and part of my journey into photography was watching her as a kid she was just a hobbyist but she had a a dark room and so seeing an image appear on on a piece of paper this is before everyone just printed it at home was like magic i mean that was the closest thing to magic for me at that point but i still have aunts (laughs) not so much i think it's been probably a couple years 
since they've said, you know, it's not too late to get into computers. <laughs> That's just a couple of years. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm not really sure what that means, but okay, I'll, I'll look into it. <laughs> oh yeah, no, my uncle until recently would cut out job ads from the newspaper and bring them to me. And <laughs> at least he evolved into like bringing me advertisements for design jobs. So that was like his, that's the closest I think he could get, but he couldn't understand the idea of me having my own business or doing my own thing. He just didn't get the stability there. Right. It took many years to, to come to terms with it. I knew that I couldn't, or I didn't want to have a, a regular job. I couldn't show up to the same place and do the same thing every day. On the other hand, the instability of, of being an artist or a creative person or working for yourself is a roller coaster. And it takes some nerve, but it also takes the understanding that, you know what, everything's going to be okay. And there's going to be the ups and downs and I've made it this far. And it's only until recently where I've come to terms and found peace with it. And if things slow down, I'm like, okay, I'm going to enjoy this time versus being stressed out because, you know, someone's not calling for, for a commercial job or whatever it is. So I don't know if others go through it, but for me, it really kind of was an up and down struggle until finding that peace and that realization that, you know what, everything's going to be okay. That's amazing. Yeah, the arts don't really have that. I mean, truthfully, neither does business. We just don't talk about it. Right. You know, business isn't as reliable or finance as we, we like to lead people to believe. But you especially, I can, one thing I wondered about since being introduced to you, I always think of you secretly as a storyteller, you know, because you make films, even your book, your photographs of prints, like everything you touch, it seems to have like a whole story behind it. I'm fascinated about how that started with you. Um, have you always been a storyteller or did you always want to tell what you really saw connected to a person or a thing? I, I'm a storyteller, but mostly to myself and in my head. And so there's constantly, whether they're imaginations and dreams and, and, and stories like that, or if it's just stories about my life, but I'm constantly playing these things in my head. And, and I think as a kid and growing up, you know, in Iran, where we had a television that had two channels that I think came on between maybe 8 a.m. and 3 p.m. And that was it. And so the source for me of imagination was stories. I wasn't glued to a television. I didn't have one listening to, to my grandmother, listening to my grandfather, listening to their stories really kind of ignited my imagination. And it's funny because I think I can go back to that as being kind of the, the, the source for my passion for storytelling and, and storytelling through images. In regard to the book too, I mean, I, I set out, it's a photography book, but I, I wanted it to have a narrative. I wanted it to have kind of a beginning, middle and end. And, and hopefully, you know, someone could feel like they're on that same journey because working with Prince really was a journey for me. Not only did it take me over 20 years, but, you know, it took me across the globe and, and I was hoping that I could instill some of that into it. So it wasn't just picture after picture. It actually raised more questions than answers. I mean, each shot is so beautiful, but I'm in awe that you could pull out the world's most private person mm -hmm. in those ways. Like, pull it out strand by strand, these unique aspects of him. And then you have these sequences. Did you have in mind, 
like a vision of what you wanted to reveal in each of those sequences? A lot of them, yes. I mean, there, there's a variety of types of photographs in there. And so there's the live concerts or live photography, which to me was not my favorite thing because I didn't have much control over it. It was it was documenting. And so I, I understood the importance and, and even kind of felt the weight of the fact that I was the only person allowed in this arena of 30,000 people with a camera. And so it was up to me to, to make sure I documented this. But I think having worked with Prince for, for 10 years prior to photographing him, we had a rapport and we became even closer once I became his photographer. And I think that's what allowed him to kind of put his guard down. And he also knew he could trust me in a way that if he didn't want an image either taken or, or later kept, he had no worries in that regard. And so he let his guard down. And so my hope was to try to capture Prince in a way that he hadn't been captured. He's been photographed by the world's you know, best photographers. And, and here I am, this kid from Minnesota. And like, what am I going to do that's that's going to stand the test of time, but also uphold this icon and the quality that he's used to? And so my attempts were to really just pull him out, to show him in a light that you hadn't seen before, to put him in situations that you wouldn't necessarily think of, of seeing Prince. Um, you know, getting him to walk down a, a New York street uh, in the middle of the day, it's not something that anyone would expect Prince to do. And I quite honestly didn't expect him to say yes. But when I saw him getting in, into his limo to go to a rehearsal and for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, it was a beautiful day. And I ran up and I'm like, Prince, the hotel's really close. What do you think about walking over there? And he said, OK. And I'm like, really? And so we went and I'm, I'm taking his picture uh, his picture's walking backwards. You know, he's standing on a corner. No one's really realizing that it's it's Prince there. But I'm also realizing I don't really know which way I'm going. <laughs> I didn't want to. I didn't want to let on to Prince that lost a little bit. Hopefully, we'll find it. So I kept taking pictures, but I was like, you know, I, I imagine I was turning red. I was definitely sweating, <laughs> and I turned around and, and there was the Waldorf Astoria, which is where the rehearsals were. But anyway, going back to your question, yeah, I, my, my attempt was to draw something out of him that, that we hadn't seen before. Uh, and it was just a little bit more of that, that quiet human side of him. I think my favorite was that image you had of him where you were just supposed to photograph him from like the waist up or something. And he was wearing this like sharp suit. And then, um, but if you looked at his feet, he was wearing like these furry, fuzzy house sandals, <laughs> like house heel sandals, like what the Playboy bunnies wear. <laughs> we were in Tokyo and about to leave to go to the next town, I think Sapporo or Sendai. And someone else had packed all of his stuff and they had packed his shoes. And before I had said, hey, Prince, there's a really beautiful kind of Japanese garden outside of this hotel. Let's go down and, and shoot a few photos before we go. And he said, okay. And so he still said yes, but <laughs> he didn't have his regular shoes. Um, and I'm like, this is just too good not to. And he knew. I'm like, I'll keep it like this. He knew. And he saw those, those pictures <laughs> and, and he thought they were, they were pretty funny too. But there's Prince and house slippers. <laughs> <laughs> so good. <sighs> Ashley, we've talked before too how you have these like really cool dreams. Do you still dream 
And does your dreaming inform your work in any way? Because I would imagine, I mean, some of your dreams sound so powerful. I do. I mean, in, in the book, I shared some dreams that, that you know, that surrounded my, my travels with Prince. Anytime that I've been involved in anything that just feels really intense and, and I'm in it, I end up having a lot of dreams about it. When I first started working in, in the film business and I was loading film into, uh, into movie camera magazines before we shot digital, you know, you did that all in either a bag or in a dark room because you couldn't expose it. And I would have dreams at night where I'm just sitting loading film in the middle of the day and then freaking out. So I've had like a series of, of like nightmarish type dreams, but then other ones that that have, I think they just replay the stories that have happened. I haven't really connected with them in a way to then utilize them in what I'm doing, but they've always just kind of reflected what's been happening. And in a way too, that I think has been informative to me, like I shared a dream in there where I'm in a helicopter and I feel like, and I love flying, so I have no fear of heights, but I, I'm afraid of being in this helicopter and being thrown around. And then I look and it's Prince is the pilot and he's just laughing because he's doing it. And I reflect on that and I think of, it was how I felt being on tour, not having really any control, being on someone else's schedule. And as much as I enjoyed it, it wasn't something that I was used to. But yeah, I, you know, I, I dream about my family a lot. And then all the random dreams that everyone has that, that make no sense, you know, unless I had like a, a dream reader tell me what it all means. I love that. What about you guys? Are you, are, you, uh, are you inspired by your dreams? Do you have a lot of dreams? Do you remember your dreams? Because sometimes I think it's even difficult to remember them. I don't dream a lot, but when I do... They're very informative in a weird way, but I have to really try to dream or be ready for it. And sometimes they're just process dreams, like you said, like it's me preparing for something or nervous for something the night before. And other times they're really powerful, like information dreams where something is just um, shown to me in a way that I needed to see it that maybe I hadn't seen before. I mean, for me, I've been asking for them recently. Like before I sleep, I really uh, kind of like, I'm like, okay, I want this. I, I ask for it. And so I feel like that's why I've been getting them. Otherwise, I don't. I also think too, like when I'm really stressed out or I'm really tired, I don't want to dream. Like I, I'm done for the day. I don't want to experience anything else. I'm just done. So then I feel like I don't really dream when I'm too tired. Yes. I relate to that. I'm sure you guys relate to this, but like you were saying, there's process dreams. And of course I have those. I have three reoccurring dreams since I was born. So they st I still get regular, I guess, installments <laughs> of those. Wow. But then weirdly, um, with my job, every single night, I dream my clients for the next day. Even when I'm tired and I'm like, I don't want to work. I just mm -hmm. want to sleep. I will dream them all. And when I wake up in the morning, sometimes if I talk with Mal or sometimes, especially if you and I process it, I realize almost every day I think I have issues. Like I wake up in the morning, I'm like, oh, my gosh, I didn't even know I had those issues. And then 
that day, it was actually my client's issues. (laughs) And then I'm like, but it felt so real. It was in the first person. But that's a weird thing, I think, about the relationship that I feel I share with people. How do you deal with carrying the weight of so many stories and so many issues? And, you know, I, I can't imagine, like, just listening to one or two people tell me, you know, how horrible their day was is more than I can usually take. But for you to have that be your daily norm, what do you do to stay cheery and smile? (laughs) First of all, I really believe in people. I don't just love people, but I genuinely believe in people. And I really have awe for their design. And so really, I don't look at it as their troubles so much as I look at it from a perspective of, hmm, what do they need to engage in further that's really their design that will remedy this? Regardless if it's something they created or something that they happened upon or something that happened to them, I know the answer is with them. So I don't have the illusion that I have a solution. And the other is my spiritual practice. You know, I just really trust that if the stars and the planets all are aligned perfectly, why would we be different? Yeah, that, that's amazing. I need to learn from that because I feel like I, I carry a lot of other people's emotions and baggage. And even not to say that they're putting it on me or they want me to, but when I hear it, I'm like, okay, what are, what are we going to do? How are we going to solve this? And I hold on to it. But I want to show care without also taking that on myself. So It's hard. We're talking about it like it's just super easy, but I think even it's hard to find your vulnerable places. I bet, Ashin, if somebody shared certain things with you, you'd already have a sense of it. Like, no, this is going to be fine. Let them work this out. But with mm-hmm. others and probably your children and your wife, you know, for me, mm-hmm. I know when it's my husband and my kids. Or smooshy. It's my weak spot. Right. You know, so, I mean, detachment is an art. <laughs> so I have to practice. Yeah, but something you taught me is, like, to not pity people because then that, it kind of puts them in a place where it's almost like you don't believe that they can get beyond where they're at, you know? And that really shifted everything for me, like... There's people in my family that I really feel sorry. I used to feel sorry for because I'm like, oh, I can't do anything. And I see them struggling and, and it would kind of be like this, oh, and it shifted for me because I was like, no, I have to create space for them to be able to have the opportunity to be beyond whatever their situation is. And realizing that I think is so much more powerful than putting them in a place where you're just like dooming them to this existence of, you know, no hope or no. And I feel like that for me, really doing that requires me to have a different kind of connection with my creator that kind of puts my reliance there that something will happen for them that I can't do. Maybe I'm not supposed to do. That's so true. Well, and actually, I wonder, Afshin, when like you've been evolving your works, your career, your voice, your storytelling, while you were creating and building a family. 
you know, and they're going through real life stuff, uh, not just like as we're talking this very philosophical, distant process, but it's up close and personal. How do you do that? How do you stay in relationship with the stages they're at while following your vision and like being true to yourself? I wish I could say that, that I've done a good job of it. I don't feel like I have. What I did do was married really well. <laughs> I married up and I have a, a really amazing wife that that is so grounded and so in touch and in tune that she's really carried most of the weight because for me, I would get almost tunnel vision. And so if I was on a project, I didn't see anything else. I didn't see the needs of, of my family necessarily or other people. I was like, so focused. And I'm trying to change that. So I want to, I want to find that balance and I've been working on it, but I think that balance is, is really important. And the fact that I had somebody that was strong enough to take that on and, and willing, you know, I feel blessed in, in, in that way, but I do, it's, a, it's really challenging. And now that I'm aware, at least I, I realize when I'm doing it. And so I can kind of snap out of those moments, you know, and, and be present for my kids. This last year, I think, for me and, and probably for most people, the last year and a half has been the first time I really kind of self-examined myself to, to the level and degree that I have. Before that, I was very reactive and life was moving. And But, you know, having that, that time to really just re-examine and also getting to an age where you're kind of looking back. So you're, the, the, the years behind you are larger than the, the years ahead. And so you start thinking about that and, and thinking about where and how you want the, the next, you know, half of your life or third of your life to go. And I realized that during those times, you know, being on the road with Prince, it, it was a gift, but it was also really difficult and probably much more for my family than me because they're living the daily life and, and, and the grind of being in LA and getting up and having lunches and breakfast and going to school. You know, I'm working hard, it's long days, but I'm also at a concert. So I'm trying to find that balance. And now when I'm doing my own, my own work, a lot of it, I'm, I'm at home. And so I set kind of some parameters of time and space that I try to adhere to. And so then I can make sure I, I pick up my son and have time to spend with him. I can give my daughter a call, although I need to do it more than I do, but to call her and, and, and check on her. It's definitely, it's a work in progress. I mean, what I, what I figured out is that I'm a work in progress and that's the way I think life is going to be. I don't think there is an end. I don't think like this job is done, you know, for so long. I feel like I, I was waiting for the thing to arrive. And I didn't know what it was, but there was something that for me as a kid, I looked up and it just seemed like adults had it all figured out. And I started, I'm like, why haven't I figured it out? And I felt like I was the only one. And now I'm realizing that it's not just me. I think that's just part of being human. I, I recently got a, I don't know if got is the right word. I have a uh, ADHD diagnosis and social anxiety and a few other things. And so those even, I, I look back and I'm like, okay, now things from my youth are, are making sense where they didn't before. But I'm going back through so many different episodes in my life, even, even working with Prince and thinking about how that affected that relationship, how social anxiety affected so many of the relationships and, and, and things that I either did or didn't do uh, as a result of it, not having the, the understanding that I have now. 
And I, I remember listening to one of your podcasts and you guys were talking about patterns and trends. And now that I've had this diagnosis, I feel like, oh, everyone has ADHD. I, I'm like, and this person, and if I mention it, there's a lot of people that, that just kind of say it like, oh yeah, I have that, but not necessarily in a, in a diagnosed way or, or fully thought out. But I'm like, okay, so does everyone actually have it? Or am I just seeing it because it's now in my, in my consciousness? And I was thinking about, it. is it, is that a pattern or a trend? <laughs> I mean, it's such a great observation of yours. And um, for myself, I would say it is a trend mm-hmm. now because of our reordering of societies, you know, the imbalances. I, I don't think anyone can keep up with the irregularities that we've normalized, the disconnections we've normalized, the lack that we've normalized and just keep carrying on when in fact people just need nurturing and nutritious relationships Mm -hmm. and connections. And Smish, you talk a lot about cancel culture in your field and what you see and, and observing that as a trend. And I think cancel culture is part of this. I've seen like the ADHD, like, wait a minute, do we throw everything away? Why don't we first understand what it is? As if we don't see people's true value, like artists, what do sensitives and artists bring to our culture, our society? They are actually the only hallmark that will be left. Ironically, we don't help them in at all, and we make them feel the worst. <laughs> Uh, but it's the only thing that will remain when we're gone. And uh, so I think, you know, so many things are aspects of that ADHD trend. And also, do you not find it interesting that amongst my clients over the last maybe 15 years, why are six-year-olds everywhere being diagnosed as ADD? What do you mean a first grader has attention issues? It can't be their issue. It has to be ours. Right. That's so true. ADD and ADHD were not on my radar. It wasn't something that I was even seeking out like, hey, doctor, do I have this? It was something, you know, that as a, as a result of the testing and conversations and all that, they, they told me. And I was just like, really? And it is interesting because you're right. A six-year-old, how do you determine that they are not paying attention? What six-year-old can you get? All six-year-olds have ADHD if that's the criteria. Yes. <laughs> but in in Iran, at least, none of these things, especially when I was born, were even in the consciousness. So they weren't dealt with. Like I said, it's, it's helped me put some pieces of the puzzle together. Uh, about my past that that didn't make sense. And it's also helped me figure out how to do things differently moving forward. It's interesting. What looks like ADHD in the description that you've been given, but I wonder what the upside of that is. You know, like what does that allow you to do? Because you have an extraordinary lens. You know, it's not your camera that's capturing these images. It's you. Mm -hmm. And maybe... The, the flip side, you know how, uh, for example, amongst predominantly African-Americans, uh, sickle cell anemia is prevalent here. But, you know, they found out genetically that in Africa, the same gene actually 
protects people from getting malaria. So you take them out of that environment and it looks like a disease. Put them in the environment and it's an incredible genetic endowment. I wonder about the equivalent of that with ADHD and your lens. I think there's definitely parts of it in terms of creativity and really my need to do so many different things. I think that's part of how it's manifested itself in me. I'm not just a, a traditional photographer or a cinematographer or a filmmaker. I've wanted to and I've had the, the opportunity to do a lot of different things. And maybe if, if I was more focused in the past, I would have just stuck to one path. But I'm happy that, that I've been able to kind of experience all the things that I have. And quite honestly, I think creatively, too, there's a lot more that that, that distraction or what's called distraction for me are all of the things that are firing in my brain and the ideas that are that are coming. I've taken ADHD medicine and the focus that it gives me, I like I feel it, I, I sense it. And sometimes that's great because I can just focus on on one thing. But it, I, I think it stifles my creativity thing that is could either be good or bad, but but there's a lot of like impulse control issues. I've been lucky that it hasn't affected me adversely, but I have also jumped into things that I, that I probably would have said no otherwise that have been fantastic and, and, and wonderful. My first meeting with Prince, deciding to say yes, that I can do something that I didn't know how to do just to get into Paisley Park. Oh, I love that story, though. Can you tell it? Because there's somebody else doing that job, right? Yeah. <laughs> when I had finished school, come back to Minneapolis, trying to figure out how to get into the, the film business, I'd worked on a, a few commercial-type projects as a uh, production assistant, had my, my beeper, my pager, and went off, and it was like a 310 number. It was a number that was not a Minnesota area code. And I called it back and they said, hey, we need a film loader. Do you know how to load film? And I said, of course, thinking that, okay, I'm going to go figure out how to do this. And they said, cool, can you be out here in an hour? And I just like freaked out because I didn't know how to load film. And I wasn't expecting something to, to be happening like, you know, right away. And I try to pull myself out of it like, oh, you know, I don't know if I can. And uh, and she said, this in Chanhassen. And it just clicked. I'm like, that has to be Prince. There's no one else shooting in Chanhassen, which is a suburb of, of Minneapolis. And I said, yeah, I'll be there. And so I showed up to Paisley Park saying that I could do a job that I didn't know how to do. And I was lucky because, again, this this is one of those moments where it didn't work adversely. It actually changed kind of the direction of my life. But I got there and, and there was the, the head camera assistant and they were already shooting. Like, yeah, the other guy didn't work or whatever. And Here's the mag. And I said to him, hey, I know how I like to load film. But why don't you tell me how you like it loaded? <laughs> and, and if you know anything about like loading film, there's nothing creative about it. It's a very technical. You just do it this way. And he just looked at me and he, and he shook his head because he knew um, just that statement alone <laughs> told him I had no idea what I was doing. And he's like, well, you're all I got right now. Um, and he taught me how to do it. And luckily, I didn't mess anything up. But that was what kind of put me in, in Paisley Park and in, in Prince's orbit. And then the other part of it was everyone at that point was saying, OK, don't look at Prince. Don't talk to him. Don't make eye contact. None of it. That's all I knew. But I walked into the soundstage where they were filming. And I was just kind of standing there like in awe because I'm seeing him now for the first time. 
And he looked over and he saw me and I looked different than, you know, this is in, in Minneapolis and I had a lot of hair. I had kind of a big fro. I'm the only brownish guy there and totally different than the rest of the crew. And I was like probably the only guy also staring at him, which was like the big no-no. He came over and he said, what's your name? And I said, Afshin. And that kind of like started it off like I was on his, on his radar. But again, going back that I think like the impulse control, had I had it, I would have said, you know what? No, I can't do that. Sorry. Again, that, that moment worked, worked out for me, but I think I, I can really, I can take that back and say, okay, that's something that ADHD, you know, if you talk about the butterfly effect, that, that flap uh, of the wing put me on, on this course. That's amazing. I wonder also, I mean, it looks like that's kind of a theme throughout your work. And I wonder if that's always the case or if you've got some stories that are just germinating underneath the surface and then something triggers the orchestration of, hey, that could be this thing. For me, creativity has always been solving a puzzle. How do I do this and how do I maneuver this? And not to say also that I've figured out the answers, but that's how I've looked at things. And so for me, creativity has always been like a way of solving a, a puzzle that is either real or that I have in, in my head. How, how do I elicit a, 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 an emotional response from somebody? Does that also go into like your last documentary that you made and produced? I mean, it's a very socially powerful, relevant statement, story that I don't think many people knew about Tommy Smith. And mm -hmm. uh, is that right? 1968 uh, Olympic? Correct. I mean, it's weird because we know about Olympians. I feel like it's one of the thing, especially in this culture, we're so sort of obsessed with being up to date about. It reflects our culture. We see ourselves in the Olympics. Yeah, I don't think very many people know his story. No, and that was part of the, the inspiration for, for me to agree to, to work on that film and, and for Glenn, my co-director, and I to make that film because it was... He shared stories with us that, that we didn't know that were not in, in the history books. He was viewed a certain way. And, and I remember seeing an image of Tommy Smith and, and John Carlos on the victory stand when I was in seventh or eighth grade. And it was really impactful. But I was looking at it, speaking of lenses, at that point, I was looking at it through the lens of, of a kid who had immigrated from Iran, from a country that had a repressive government and that any act of, of defiance was treated in a really harsh way. I mean, people were, were killed and silenced and disappeared under the Shah, which is, which is the time that I was in, in Iran. And so that image to me really stood out because it just was an image of defiance for these two men to, to stand up there and to do that. And I, so I researched it a little bit more. And what I read was Black Power and this, and it didn't really talk about the heart of the matter. Why, why were they protesting? What, was, what were the injustices? The things that, that Tommy and John were protesting or standing up for are, are issues that we are still facing and, and dealing with. And so we felt it was important to help facilitate Tommy telling his own story. And the response has been great. I mean, it's been nice to hear from people that they didn't know 
a lot of the things that we were able to, to tell. And then sharing that story with kids, we've been able to do screenings for several schools and then do panel discussions. And that's really been wonderful too, to see these kids really kind of excited about that history and for them to, in these discussions, be able to connect what was happening then to, you know, what's happening now and the importance for them to, to use their voice and their platform, no matter, no matter how big or how, how small it may be. We, we didn't do any of that for, for any accolades, but to, to get into Tribeca and, and a number of other festivals to get nominated for an Emmy, which was just like a huge surprise and nowhere on my radar was I thinking or expecting that would happen. I quite honestly, I don't even remember submitting <laughs> for the Emmy. So that, that was, that was really cool. Oh, wow. That's a, that's amazing. Well, I mean, it's so tragically, but also excitingly current, like you're saying, it's, you know, the social justice that you weave into today, that is today's story and today's struggle is particularly poignant in your um, storytelling technique in that film. I found it really moving. It's, it's not a dry documentary. You're telling the story and a lot of other stories and the backstory behind that story, which is what makes it so powerful. Not only, like you said, were we telling this historical piece, but we were seeing the man today. And it was almost like a phoenix rising for him to be so deeply involved in the art world now and, and, and to be heralded in that world is amazing. Ultimately, again, the same way that, that you know, I felt responsible taking Prince's picture as, as one of the only historians of that moment, we, we felt very responsible in, in telling uh, or help, helping facilitate tell Tommy's story in, in the right way. And so beyond that image, that, that 2D image, you know, we're interacting with the 3D, the, the whole man and, and, and the wonderful person that he is. And, you know, really inspired to, to hear that despite everything he went through as a, as a result of that, I don't think he would, and I know he wouldn't have changed any of it. I've seen that kind of sounds like I don't know. To me, it feels like from the outside that within a lot of the stories that you've helped forward carry a piece of your story, maybe, which is why you're able to carry them forward so beautifully. Like It feels like in a way you can really relate to those people and to those stories and to where they're at. And I think that what you're calling ADHD I don't think maybe it would happen unless you had that sort of like sensitivity or that empathy. And I mean, even when I hear your story about loading the film, it just feels like so courageous to me to go beyond your lack of traditional knowledge and something and then just feeling like you need to express yourself. You know, it's like you have all these things inside of you, you have all this creativity and it just feels like you're always seeking for different ways to express it. And I just think that that's super admirable that you keep having the courage to express it and, and always like charting new territory in expressing it. You know, it's so cool. That's super, super inspiring. There's a lot of people that just get stuck and do nothing, you know. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I feel stuck in, in many ways. And so it's hard for me to really kind of look at the things that I've done and, and 
give them maybe the weight that they they deserve you know when you're in the moment you're like yeah i did that but i really i'm trying to figure out how to do this i'm really scared about doing this right and i'm not holding on so it's nice to hear you say that i, I appreciate it and i take that in and you know sometimes it takes other people to reflect for you some of the things that you've done a lot of my creativity and the work that i've done has been in, in the service of other things that are I don't want to say not of me because you're, you're, you're absolutely right. The projects that I've chosen, there's been something about it that, that inherently felt uh, like it was also part of my story. But most of the work that I've done has not originated from me. You know, filmmaking is collaborative. And so I, I, I like that aspect of it. But I'm ready to start telling some of the stories that, that you know, we talked about at the beginning have been running around my head and get those out and still collaborate with, you know, with everyone. What I don't get in, in the commercial world, which is just really a, a paycheck, that's that's where I'm just purely doing something that I have no attachment to, right, advertising. And that's where I look at it, uh, as I was saying before, as a puzzle. Like what I'm gonna get out of this is I'm gonna figure out how to solve this puzzle. I get really bored doing the same thing the same way. For a lot of people is very upsetting when I come into, whether it's Persian food that I'm cooking or any food that I'm cooking, I change up the recipe each time. And, and my uh, family's like, okay, what happened to this? To how I, how I light a set and I walk in and I'll look around. And the first things that come to mind about how I'm going to light this, a big source there and a window and this and whatever goes, I take that all in and then I say, okay, I'm not going to do any of that. Uh, I'm going to challenge and let me see how I can light it, still make it look amazing, but not that way. <laughs> And again, that's, that's just an exercise for me to keep it interesting. Uh, I think sometimes the assistant director or the producer is like, what's going on? You know, why, why is it taking this long? Oh, Afshin's trying something. But that's, I, I, need, I need those moments for projects outside of myself. The projects that I want to do, I just need to find that courage that you were speaking of to let my, my voice out. And I'm trying to figure out how to do that. Mm. Well, I know that we're really looking forward to that. And I'm also really excited about your daughter, Yara, sort of taking on directing and getting more into filmmaking as well. And maybe potentially you guys telling some of your stories together. Yeah, it's it's exciting to, to really see her blossom. Um, my wife uh, has a really keen photographic eye. I would say probably better than better than me she's able to take things in really quickly and figure it out uh what she can do in a short period of time it would take me probably you know a couple couple hours uh to figure out so it's really fun to see both the two of them together are are amazing uh but the way they play off each other and and, and the, the imagination the creativity and the stories that i think that they're going to be able to tell through the production company i i really can't wait to see how that that manifests and and to be a part of it she really is has evolved us and that's kind of what Carrie and I have you know have talked about our we want our, our kids to to evolve us not to not to emulate or to uh, uh, replicate who we are but to to go beyond so they're they're, they're all seeming like the, the, that's the direction they're they're moving um in in whatever world and I'm not saying that it's in entertainment or or filmmaking whatever whatever endeavor they choose. Um, it's exciting to watch. Yeah, it's beautiful to watch. It really is. 
You really have created remarkable creations in human beings. Each one of them, they're so unique. Yeah, and I'm so touched that you named one of them after me. And he's our firecracker, so. <laughs> well, Afshin, there is a question that we ask all of our guests before we end. Smishi, do you want to ask? Afshin, is there anything that you thought by now you would see or you would have done or experienced in your life by now or on earth, but uh, it hasn't happened yet? I have two parts, two, two answers to this, I guess. One of them I hit on earlier, which was, I thought that I would have it figured out by now. And that, <laughs> that hasn't happened. I, I really thought that that's what adulthood meant. You have everything figured out. And you can watch TV whenever you want. <laughs> Those were like the two, the two big things about being an adult for me that seemed really exciting. I never watched TV. Uh, I haven't figured it out. I realize now that that my parents were just faking it. Uh, you know, <laughs> that, they, that they didn't necessarily have the answers either, that, that they were human. But it, but it took me a while to, to realize that. And then the other thing, just a little more esoteric and kind of bigger. I don't know if I expected this to happen, but I would love to be around connection to, to life outside of this planet. I just can't imagine in, in the vastness of this universe that we could be the, like we can't be that egocentric to think that we're the only ones and that there's nothing out there. Now, whether we're close enough to ever connect, I don't know, but that just is something that's very exciting for me, the, the prospect that there could be some sort of connection at some point, even if it's radio signals that, that we get that we're able to decipher. <laughs> And it says, just wait, we're coming or whatever. Yeah. Or even the idea that there's another civilization somewhere out there that's beyond us or that has figured out more than we have or, or maybe that's witnessed us fail so many times and has some kind of insight into how we could possibly do something different. <laughs> yeah, we'll just stay on the edge of our seats waiting for that story. It's so wonderful spending this time with you. And thanks for joining us, especially in our little time for Chai. <laughs> Thank you, guys. This, this, this was fun. And I appreciate how nice and easy you made it. It was really wonderful talking to you guys. Bye, Afshin June. And that's our show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can find the Butterfly Forecast every Tuesday with a new episode available wherever you do your podcasting. Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher. Hope to see you then. We'll see you next time. 